Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to World Christianity and New Books Network. This podcast is for those who would like to explore the expansive discourse on world Christianity as a global phenomenon and as an emerging field that examines Christianity's cross-cultural, diasporic, and transnational manifestations by paying close attention to the underrepresented and marginalized expressions of the Christian faith in the global South. Thank you for joining me today. I'm excited to share this interview with you all. I'm your host, Byung-ho Choi from Princeton Theological Seminary. And I'm your host, Sun-young Lee from Princeton Theological Seminary. Today, we are privileged to introduce Women in World Christianity, Building and Sustaining a Global Movement, written by Dr. Gina Julo and published by Wiley Blackwell in 2023. Many scholars have stated that women are major participants in the Christian faith, but there has been little quantitative data or analysis of women in Christianity. Today's new book, Women in Christianity, is a groundbreaking work filling this gap as the first comprehensive analysis of women's experiences and their roles in Christianity across the regions, ecclesiastical traditions, and various topics. This innovative volume focuses on women's experiences in the founding, spread, and continuation of the Christian faith and centers on women's perspectives to illustrate their key role in Christianity becoming a world religion in the 20th and 21st centuries. Dr. Julo masterfully carries out this challenging task with a pioneering approach. She offers both a wide-angle view and a localized snapshot of the status of women in Christianity around the world. Let me use Dr. Julo's words here. Quote, this book is part history in describing Christian women from the past, but also part social science as it engages with what Christian women are doing around the world today. Furthermore, many chapters introduce readers to female theologians who produce scholarship that is largely marginalized in Western theological education, end quote. 
and this book successfully does what its author promises to do. Congratulations to Dr. Zula on your publication of this important book. Dr. Gina A. Zerlo is the co-director of the Center for the Study of Global Christianity and a visiting research fellow at Boston University's Institute on Culture, Religion, and World Affairs. And in 2023 to 2024, Dr. Zerlo is a young visiting scholar of world Christianity at Harvard Divinity School. Dr. Zerlo is an interdisciplinary scholar crossing between history, sociology, and world Christianity with particular interest in women's experiences of Christianity and church life worldwide. At Gordon-Conwell, she taught courses on world Christianity, women in world Christianity, and American religious history. And she is also an active member of the Religious Research Association and the Society for the Scientific Study of Religion. Dr. Zerlo is also the co-editor of the World Christian Database and associate editor of the World Religion Database by both by Brill. Back in 2019, she co-edited the third edition of the World Christian Encyclopedia, published by Edinburgh University Press, which covers the history and current status of Christianity in every country of the world down to the denominational level. And to just highlight a few of her other publications, First, she has published articles in the Journal of World Christianity with the titles, The Study of World Christianity, Past, Present, and Future, History, Theology, Social Sciences, and Beyond in 2019, and More Than Numbers, uh, David B. Barrett and 20th Century Historiography of World Christianity in 2018. She has also contributed chapters in several edited volumes, such as the chapter titled Missions and Money, Christian Finance and Global Perspective in the edited volume, Missions and Money, Global Realities and Challenges, published by uh, William Carey Publishing in 2022, and the Religions in Europe, a statistical summary uh, in the Oxford Handbook of Religion and Europe, published by the Oxford University Press in 2021. And just last year, she published her first monograph, Global Christianity, a guide to the world's largest religion from Afghanistan to Zimbabwe, published by Zondervan Academic. Dr. Zerlo was also named one of BBC's 100 Most Influential and Inspiring Women of 2019 for her work in studying religious statistics, and in particular, the female future of religion worldwide. So welcome back, Dr. Zerlo, uh, to New Books in World Christianity, and thank you so much for returning to our podcast to discuss your new book. Thanks so much for having me. Now, this is your second time coming on our New Books Network World Christianity podcast, and in the previous one, you discussed your book titled Global Christianity um, that I previously just mentioned. I know that during the previous podcast, you had the opportunity to briefly share about your background, but for our listeners that might be new to your work, do you mind briefly introducing yourself, your academic background, where you did your PhD, and how you became interested uh, in your field of study? Sure. So I'm a social scientist and a demographer of religion doing quantitative studies of world Christianity and other religions. And I'm pretty sure no child ever says, I want to be a demographer of religion when I grow up. So I always say that I got interested in this field of study really by accident. Um, I came to Gordon-Conwell to do my Master of Arts in Religion 
uh, several years ago, and that's where I encountered for the first time the work of the Center for the Study of Global Christianity. And my colleague, now colleague, Todd Johnson, came and gave a guest lecture in one of my classes. And it's now what I know is the standard maps and charts and graphs and stuff of what's happening around the world. And I was completely smitten. I thought that you can study the world like this. I had never seen it before. It was really exciting for me. And that week, I got a job at the center. And now I run the Center for the Study of Global Christianity. So it's been a really wonderful journey. And along that journey, I did my PhD working under Dana Robert at Boston University School of Theology. So I got my historical training under the leadership of Dana Robert, and then my social science and demography training with, with Todd Johnson. So I'm really quite fortunate to have been working in my field while training to be in my field. Wow, oh, thank you for sharing your story with us. Um, as we have briefly uh, heard in the introduction of this book, um, this monograph is a groundbreaking work uh, providing comprehensive and interdisciplinary analysis of women's experiences in world Christianity. And Dr. Zulo, we would love to hear more about how you came to write this important book. Um, so how did you how did this journey begin and what led you to write this important work? This book really was a journey. And I think one place I can pinpoint where that that journey took an important turn. Um, so I attend a lot of conferences in my work. I, I go to a lot of global Christian meetings because I can't travel to every country in the world. So let's go to places where lots of people are going to. And I noticed over and over going to these meetings that there were so few women at them and, and especially so few women speaking at them. And I just started to observe this dynamic of, you know, I'm being told that world Christianity apparently is a woman's movement and that women are more religious than men. This is a really common thing in the sociology religion. And yet here I am going to all these meetings and there's precious few women there. And it really came to a head at a meeting um, I was at in 2018 in Bogota, Colombia, and there were 300 Christians there. And it was pretty diverse in terms of the ecclesial traditions they came from and the geographic areas they came from. But I could count on one hand, I feel like, the number of women at this conference. And that's where I thought up the Women in World Christianity Project, where I would go after data on what was happening in terms of a, a gendered perspective on world Christianity. But the book itself, um, I didn't really set out to write a book. I set out to do research and put it in the database. That's what I do. But the book, I was actually teaching a class at Gordon-Conwell on women in world Christianity. And in the preparation for the course, I just could not find a single book that I wanted to fit the way that I like to teach. I like to think about Christianity in terms of its geography, so Asia, Africa, Latin America, I like to think about Christianity in terms of its major ecclesial tradition, Catholics, Orthodox, Protestants, and then these, these topics. So that's how I was um, organizing my class. And there was no one book that covered women all over the world with the ecclesial diversity that I was looking for. there's And it's not to say there's not any books on women. There's tons of books on women, Catholic women and Protestant women and historical women and, you know, Pentecostal women, women in mission, tons of stuff. But I really had to pull from a bunch of different sources to get what I wanted for my students to engage with. And so then after that experience, that's the thing where I said, I should probably write a book. 
um, in case I teach this class again, or someone else teaches a world Christianity class where they can have what I hope is a standard text to assign alongside other standard texts in world Christianity studies. So you have kind of your general approach and then your gendered approach. Wow. It, I mean, you really chose to write this book, but at the same time, it sounds like the book itself chose you as so. uh, its author. It's fascinating. And, and just a quick uh, follow-up question. What sources did you uh, turn to as you wrote about the women in Christianity across the globe and traditions and how was your writing experiences overall? Yeah, the question of sources is a really good one because the scope of what I was doing was so broad. And and from a disciplinary perspective, I was drawing from historical studies, social science, and theology. I was using almost anything I could possibly get my hands on. That's the short answer to the question. Anything that had any kind of gender analysis, I was trying to draw from it to 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 write this book. And one thing I I think is part of my unique contribution to the field of world Christianity is the social science side. So really looking into data from the World Bank, from the United Nations, from government censuses, from social scientific surveys and polls. So you'll see a lot of references in the book to the World Value Survey, to the Pew Research Center. So trying to take research that people are doing in, quote, the secular world and bringing it into world Christianity discourse. So besides from kind of the standard historical narratives that you might expect in a world Christianity book, there's these different narratives of putting world Christianity content in conversation with global data sets. Wow, thank you so much for sharing um, your insights about the sources and about your um, overall understanding and approach to writing um, this book. Um, it's just fascinating how these kind of data can speak uh, volumes to our understanding of Christianity uh, worldwide and also in regards to women. Um, for our listeners uh, just tuning in, uh, Women in World Christianity is just hot, hot off the press as it came out just two months ago in August, if I'm not mistaken. And you'll be surprised to find how incredibly comprehensive and thorough this book is with over 360 pages and a total of 17 chapters uh, filled with pictures that capture women's uh, Christian women in multiple contexts, uh, along with statistical charts and graphs that lays out the detailed facts about women in world Christianity. One aspect I would like to briefly highlight here is how Dr. Zerlo's book can not only be used as a you know reference book on women in world Christianity, but with uh, reflection questions at the end of each chapter, this book can be utilized as a valuable tool within the undergraduate and graduate classroom settings that can you know generate discussion and further inquiries. Um, furthermore, the well-organized citations at the end of each chapter will also allow readers to keep digging uh, into the specific topics presented in each chapter, um, encouraging more research uh, to be done. Well, to introduce this book, uh, this whole this large book as a whole, it is divided into three main parts. Um, I'll quickly go through uh, each main part so that our listeners can have a better understanding of this content of this book. Part one, titled Women in World Christianity by Continent, 
uh, covers some of the important themes and trends in world Christianity and sheds light on the history, uh, quantitative data, descriptions of women's activities, both past and present in all continents, um, Africa, Asia, Europe, Latin America, which also includes the Caribbean, North America, and Oceania. Also not forgetting to mention that the chapters in part one also introduces female theologians uh, from these continents. Part two, titled uh, Women in World Christianity by Tradition and Movement, covers women within the Catholic, Orthodox, Protestant, Independent, Pentecostal, slash Charismatic, and Evangelical traditions, you know, providing information on women and their experiences um, in the various ecclesiological traditions. And lastly, part three is titled Women in World Christianity by Selected Topics. Um, you know, it's impossible to dive into all the topics related to women in world Christianity. This book closely looks at four specific topics in correlation to women in world Christianity. So those four topics are gender-based violence, ecolo ec ecology, uh, theological education, and peace building. We will go more into details regarding uh these three parts as we proceed into the interview. But first, Dr. Zillow, uh, you mentioned in the introduction that your book directly answers to Dana Roberts's call, who is a mission historian and a giant in the field of world Christianity, you know, who asked, what would the study of Christianity in Africa, Asia, and Latin America look like uh, for scholars who put women into the center of their research? And it also builds on the argument that wool Christianity is, quote, a woman's movement. Before we head into further discussion about your book, Dr. Zerlo, I think that this is a great starting point for our discussion today. And I would like to ask if you could speak more on this argument of world Christianity as a woman's movement. Could you explain a little more on what this means? Yeah, I agree that this is in many ways the foundation of this book. Um, and in Dr. Roberts' article from 2006, which she published in the International Bulletin of Mission Research, she called world Christianity a woman's movement for two primary reasons. The first reason is that she said world Christianity is a woman's movement because women outnumber men in churches. But she said in the article, there's no data. So I tucked that away in the back of my mind when I first encountered it. The second reason that she called World Christianity a woman's movement is because there are gendered reasons for conversion. And she gives a whole host of historical examples of women converting to Christianity for reasons specific to their experience as women, whether it's to, um, you know, escape gender-based violence or gain a voice or gain education or influence their husband to stop drinking or whatever it is, all kinds of reasons, different reasons why men and women join churches. And so this article was really important for my work because it it gets at one, the first point of her article, which is there's no data. And I don't like hearing there's no data. There must be data somewhere. There's got to be data somewhere to help support the notion that there are more women than men in Christian churches. And actually, the Pew Research Center in their gender and religion report did actually 
find that um, there were more women than men in churches around the world, but they just did a top level analysis, not a detailed analysis down to the congregational level like I was uh, proposing to do. So definitely Dr. Roberts' article serves as a very strong theoretical foundation for this book. Thank you um, for your answer. And um, my next question um, is, with such a uh, book with an enormous amount of data, as you mentioned earlier, uh, collecting data is one thing, then bringing them together and organizing them into narratives and analyze them is another thing. So I was wondering whether you can tell us more about your strategy in uh, taking such a challenging work and also what are the, some of the things that you had in your mind uh, in your writing um, this book? Yeah, the writing process was def was definitely difficult for this book. And there are two major things that helped me the most. One was I had three very talented research assistants working with me. And I'd like to name them because this book would not exist without them. So Jane Chun and Nadia Andrelinus and Sheila Chan were uh, my right-hand women in writing this book. <laughs> they helped me track down data. They were helping fill gaps. They were doing lit review work with me. We did a humongous literature review for this project. Um, they helped organize citations. They were pure gold. Um, so this is a better book because of my students helping me, and I'm really grateful for that. The other thing that helped me a lot for this particular book is that because it's a textbook, you can tell it takes somewhat of a cookie cutter approach for each of the subjects, each of the chapters. And that was intentional because I wanted it to be able to be used in a classroom setting. And I think for, for pedagogical reasons, it helps if each chapter and each topic is pretty much covered the same way. But it took a lot of trial and error to figure out what the cookie cutter was going to be. And it went through many different iterations of what kind of data am I going to include? What is it going to look like? And then I asked myself many times, is there too much quantitative data in the book? You can tell again as you flip through it. There are a lot of tables in this book. Um, but again, that's all part of putting world Christianity in conversation with social scientific approaches, in particular quantitative ones. So once I figured out what the cookie cutter was going to be after many, many drafts, it was a lot easier for the writing process to flow because I knew I'm going to have a historical section here and a data section here and a contemporary section here and a theology section here. But even then making decisions about what gets included, you know, if you have 500 words to talk about female theologians from Africa. Well, which ones are you going to talk about? You can really only talk about a handful. So trying to pick and choose who to include, who not to include. You know, I made a lot of editorial decisions that some readers might not agree with, which is totally fine. Um, but if you think of it as this is an introduction to women in world Christianity, and it has a lot of breadth, it's covering a lot of different topics. Um, so it's good for an intro to world Christianity class, a women in world Christianity class, a Christianity history of Christianity in the 20th century. You know, if you're teaching a class on African Christianity, you're going to find the one chapter on African Christianity lacking in depth. It's not designed for that. And I'm so I'm fully aware of that. Um, so when again, it's, it's definitely uh, an attempt at breadth instead of depth. 
Well, thank you for that insight. And for our listeners, I think that will be very helpful in, in thinking about how to best utilize uh, your book, Dr. Zerillo, uh, especially within the classroom setting. Um, with significant contributions of women to the expansion of Christianity and with you know Christianity being argued as having been a majority female religion by many scholars, and you've uh, touched upon this in your own writing, uh, I, I believe in the uh, introduction, um, could you touch upon why it has taken so long for stories of women in church history especially to be brought into the limelight? And how does women's history and place women at the center in the study of Christian history impact, you know, our understanding of Christianity? I think anyone who's done research, whether it's historical or social science on women, realize right away how difficult it is. And part of it is you're working with a body of literature that doesn't put women's stories and perspectives and experiences into the center of the story. So you have to work really hard just to find them. Who are the women of the story? So think of any story of church history that you know, you probably are thinking of it through either a male perspective or a quote unquote gender neutral perspective, which is typically a male perspective. So where do you find the women? You know, if you think of the Protestant Reformation, who were the women of the Protestant Reformation? Who were the women of the American Missionary Movement? Who are the women of Vatican II? Right? Who were the women of Vatican II? You never hear about the women of Vatican II, but there are books about the women of Vatican II. <laughs> so, do, you have to you have to ask a different set of questions to do women's research. You have to find a different set of sources to do it, and it's a little bit like swimming against the current or I forget what the, or going against the grain. Maybe that's a better, you're going against the grain. Um, I mean, that's not to say, I mean, there is, again, there are lots of excellent studies about women in church history, women in mission history. Um, and we see more and more of these kind of revisionist histories, revisionist in the best way, really coming to light of rediscovering women's contributions to the growth of Christianity. Um, but there's still a lot of challenges. So for example, doing social science research on women in sex segregated societies, that's a really difficult thing to do. We're not going to be able to interview Iranian Christian women in underground churches, right? That's just not a possibility. Um, so th there's just there's a lot of different challenges that make it difficult for women's stories to be brought into the limelight. Um, but I think we are seeing more and more people starting to ask those questions and trying to look for those different sources of data in order to answer those questions. Thank you. Um, Dr. Zulo, you really spoke for me for this answer because that is exactly why I'm so grateful for um, this book. And one of the chapters um, I enjoyed reading in part one of your book was the chapter on women in oceanic Christianity. Those within the academic discourse of world Christianity know that Christianity in Oceanians, Oceania has been the often overlooked and understudied region in world Christianity. So I wanted to dedicate this next question to discussing more about Oceanic Christianity and Oceanic women. 
So Dr. Zulo, in what ways um, have Oceanic Christian women contributed to the development of indigenous Oceanic theologists? I love that you ask a question just on Oceania. I love that we can draw more attention to this region of the world, in particular, the Pacific Islands. Um, this region of the world really gets left off the map of world Christianity studies, partially because they are small island nations with small populations, and so they're hard to see, and they don't make the narrative because they're not big. But there's tons of fascinating stuff happening in the Pacific Islands, and there's a lot going on there that the rest of world Christianity needs to learn from. And that's where indigenous oceanic theology comes in. Because, um, you know, we, we've seen these waves of contextual theology emerge in the late 20th century, in the 1970s. Uh, in particular, you have kind of the first wave of contextual theology. Well, in everywhere around the world, the first wave of contextual theology didn't include women. So if you look at the first wave of liberation theology in Latin America, of womanist theology in sub-Saharan Africa, Asian Asian uh, contextual Asian theologies. Once you have kind of the introduction of contextual theology, then you have a little bit of the next generation saying, well, wait a minute, what about being, um, you know, Asian, female, and Christian, not just Asian and Christian. So in Oceania, uh, we didn't have a volume of Oceanic feminist theology until 2003. That's this century, 2003, was the first edited volume of theology from women in the Pacific Islands. That's really late. Um, and that's not to say anything about them. That's just to say of all of the hurdles that women had to jump in order to produce this, in order for their voices to be heard, in order for them to go against the cultural grain, there's a lot of patriarchy going on in the Pacific Islands um, that women have to overcome in order for their voices to be heard. And one of the things that is uh, most important, I think, about Pacific Islander theology is its holism. And this is a theme you see in women's activity, women's history all over the world. But for the Pacific Islands, it's this holism between feminism and the environment. So as a Christian, to think theologically is to think about the environment and to engage in eco-feminist or eco-womanist theology. And that's not just women, too. Men men also think in, a, in an eco way. Um, so to me, the, the climate crisis is one of the most global issues facing the world today. I don't want to hear eco-feminist theology from white women like me. I want to hear eco-feminist theology from Pacific Island women. Those are the people that I want to hear eco-feminist theology from. Those are the people I want to hear to help us understand what's at stake in fighting climate change. And those are the voices that I want Western climate change deniers to hear from women whose entire livelihoods are being threatened by rising seawaters by nothing that they have done themselves. So there is so much wisdom that is coming out of um, eco-feminist theology in the Pacific Islands that needs to be brought into Western theological discourse. Wow, Dr. Zerlo, thank you so much for highlighting that. And we hope that more um, publications come from in regards to Oceania and the Pacific Islands as well. Um, heading into part two, um, this part offers a new set of frameworks exploring Christian women's experiences. The frameworks is, quote, different ecclesiological traditions today, end quote. 
what I appreciate about this part is the width um, and the depth of your analysis in dealing with each tradition. And each chapter begins by drawing a foundational sketch with a historical uh, preamble using statistics and names, then adds details and colors to the sketch by telling um, in-depth vignettes based on themes and topics. Well, I wish we had enough time to revisit every chapter. Um, here, I would like to just focus on chapter eight titled Women in Catholicism. This chapter exemplifies, I believe, your book's contribution by successfully highlighting Catholic women's commitment and leadership, um, which have often been overshadowed by the debate over the church's you know, prohibition on female clergy. Dr. Zerlo, would you tell us more about Catholic women's agency and their relations to the male-only hierarchy? And how does your research shed light on these women's commitment and leadership rising above you know, social norms and power imbalances with their churches? So for me, it was really important to talk about women and leadership outside of formal pastoral positions. That's just one lane. There are many lanes that you can be in in the church and that women are in. And one issue that you have when you start talking about, quote, women's issues in the church, the first thing people are going to say is, oh, can they be pastors? And I don't want my study nor this book to be shadowed in the can women be pastors debate. Thinking about researching, engaging in, empowering women in world Christianity is way broader than just can women be pastors or priests. So you'll notice I don't even have a chapter on women's ordination in the book. And that was intentional to not do that. <laughs> and I don't I talk a little bit about um the movement towards ordination of women in Catholic churches, but not really, it's not the focus. The focus is what women are actually doing, what women can do, not what they can't do. So for Catholic women, there is nothing more inspiring than women religious, nothing. I think some of the most inspiring Christian women in the world today are Catholic women religious, quote, sisters, right? Um, those who are in consecrated life. There are more women religious than religious men and priests combined everywhere in the world. In India alone, there are 99,000 women religious. 99,000! That's an incredible number of women in India who have given their lives to consecrated life in service of God and the church and society. It's really quite remarkable. So doing the chapter on women religious was so fun, uh, women in Catholicism, because they're engaged in everything. You name it, women religious are doing it education, healthcare, evangelism, theological education, anti-nuclear activism, creation care, theology, like anything that can be done, women religious are doing it. And so I hope that people who are outside of the Catholic tradition can read this and just broaden their perspectives on the quote unquote issue of women in the Catholic church beyond the hierarchy. There's a lot more going on beyond the hierarchy. Yes, indeed. Uh, your chapters really reveal that uh, side of and the scene of women's uh, participation and contribution. And I'd like to suggest spending a bit of time on chapter 11 titled Women in Independent Christianity. And some of our audiences may not be familiar with independent uh, Christianity as a category apart from Protestant Christianity. But as your chapter well demonstrates, independent Christianity has provided dynamic sites for women 
to create and claim their spaces in the face of challenges within and beyond their churches. So Dr. Zula, would you tell us more about the challenges that women have faced in independent churches and the significance of women's participation in forming independent Christianity worldwide? And it would be also helpful if you could help our audience to get familiar with independent Christianity as a category. Yeah, this is a great clarifying question. So as a demographer, my job is to put people in boxes. Sorry, most people don't like to be put in a box, but that's my whole job. So, <laughs> and, and we have several different boxes that, that we put people in. So I'm going to go over our taxonomy with you. So no math involved, just an organizational structure. So in our understanding of world Christianity, you have four major Christian traditions. So that's Catholics, Orthodox, Protestant, and Independents. Now you've probably heard of Catholics and Orthodox and Protestants. That's well established. But this independent category is one we feel really strongly that it exists for a few reasons. Uh, so independents are Christians who do not self-identify as Catholic, Orthodox, or Protestants. And there's quite a lot of Christians in the world who don't identify in either either of those three major traditions. And that includes um, African independent churches, a lot of third wave, charismatic, neo-Pentecostal churches, underground churches, house churches, loosely networked churches, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, also known as Mormons, and Jehovah's Witnesses. So it's a bit of a catch-all category, if I'm really honest, <laughs> but there is an ecclesial reason why these churches are put together. Not necessarily a theological reason. Remember, I'm a social scientist. I'm coming at this from a social scientific perspective. So if you self-identify as a Christian, but you're not Catholic, Orthodox, or Protestant, I don't want to call you Catholic, Orthodox, or Protestant. I want to call you what you call yourself. And so this category includes churches that broke away from established churches, and that's a lot of the African independent churches. So you had missionaries, beginning churches in sub-Saharan Africa in the 19th and 20th centuries, and then you had African-led schism movements breaking away from those mission-founded churches to start their own African churches led by Africans for Africans asking African questions. And there's even an organization today called the OAIC, the Organization of African Instituted Churches. Churches. So they call themselves independent or indigenous or instituted, the AIC. Um, so, so for me, it's really important to categorize people in ways that make sense to them. Um, so in terms of women, um, so looking at AICs, for example, you see a huge diversity of what women are doing or what they have access to in AICs. Some AICs were founded by women. They had followers and they broke away from the church or they started their own movement all on their own. So you have some AICs that were founded by women, some that welcome women in the highest ranks of leadership and some that don't. Some AICs were founded by women and then turned over to men in the next generation and have had no female leaders since. Some AICs draw from African traditional religion. Some try to separate themselves from African traditional religion. Um, but in African traditional religion, women generally have a lot of spiritual power and spiritual influence. So even where women don't have institutional power, that doesn't mean they don't have influence. 
And that's something we see a lot in Christianity overall, but in independent Christianity and Pentecostal charismatic Christianity and evangelical Christianity, um, in some of these traditions where women are not permitted to the highest ranks of pastor or priest or whatever it is, they have a lot of soft power. And in, in a lot of these places, there's not, there's not even a push for women's ordination or women in leadership. Why would they want that? Why would they want the responsibility of being the head person in front of the church on Sunday morning when they're exerting far more influence in society, in the families, in communities than maybe the pastor is? So I think um, this is why we don't frame the discussion in terms of ordination or non-ordination. It, it's about access and opportunity and at the and fundamentally, it's about women being able to do what they feel called to do and not about imposing kind of Western gender norms or Western ideas of feminism elsewhere in the world. And I'll admit that's something I had to be really careful of as a white Western woman writing about world Christianity, being very careful to let the feminism of the global South rise up in its own unique way, not view it from a second wave Western feminist perspective. Now there are feminisms in the global South and they do come out in these different kinds of Christianity in their geographic cultural context in different ways. So it makes it very complicated to study, but it also makes it endlessly fascinating to recognize the rich diversity that exists for women around the world. Oh, thank you, Dr. Zerlo, for that clarification and for enlightening us how, you know, we can further develop um, our understanding of women also within um, uh, ecclesiological circles or within um, Christianity as a, a women's movement worldwide. And um, I really liked how you explained how this is an endless, it can be an endless um, topic that we can further dig into. Um, and I think your book really challenges its readers to further um, to investigate into um, women's roles and how women has become, you know, various, uh, has become, you know, positive and in, uh, been big influences in various parts of the world. Um, as we move to part three, my special appreciation goes to you, Dr. Zerlo, for taking on these, you know, difficult subjects and providing fascinating but sobering reports on these urgent topics of gender violence, ecology, and theological education, and peace building. Um, they bring our attention to the shadows behind the light and remind us of a call for Christian women to restore the Christian faith and the world. Um, Dr. Zerlo, do you mind briefly highlighting about the significance of each topic in the current Christian women's experiences? As you uh, as you briefly mentioned in the introduction that you had, you know, a long list of potential subjects before narrowing them down to these four. I think it would be great if you could share with us how you came down to these specific four topics. Yeah, I'm trying to remember myself how I arrived on these four particular topics. I think part of it was... Um, data-driven is their data. And then part of it was, as I was working on the other sections, geography and ecclesiology, what were some of the common themes that were coming up in, in those studies that I thought warranted their own explicit attention on their own? Because there's a lot about women's leadership. There's a lot about women in mission in parts one and two. I could have done a women's leadership chapter. I could have done a women in mission chapter. But instead, I decided to weave those topics throughout parts one and two. 
So I think the inclusion of gender-based violence became abundantly obvious to me as I was writing the book. And um, part of this was data-driven. So one data resource I use quite a lot is the Women's Stats Project. Anyone can go online and they have these amazing maps that are available for free download. And you can look at the data behind it, look at the sourcing and see where it comes from. And there's a map on the Women's Stats Project that shows there is nowhere in the world where women have complete physical safety. Nowhere, not a single place do women have complete physical safety. And when I bumped into that reality, it colored my whole perspective on women in world Christianity. Because here we are talking about whether women can be pastors or what they're teaching in Sunday school or women in mission or any number of subjects. But underlying all of that is that none of these women who've ever done any of these amazing, amazing things has been physically safe. And this is not a question that men have to ask, honestly. Um, men don't have to think about their surroundings, physical surroundings in the same way that women do. And so once you realize that there's basic safety at stake for women, it makes you think twice about the arguments that we have in churches. It makes you think twice about the priorities that churches take on. I mean, how many churches do you know take on women's physical safety as a key part of their outreach in the world? None. I, I mean, almost none. Um I was going to say, so, so gender-based violence was an obvious reality that I think needed attention. Um, and, and that's not to say that churches don't care about women's physical safety. I'm not trying to say that. I'm just trying to bring light to the reality of the context in which women are working around the world. Um, the issue of ecology. So as I mentioned, I think that the global climate crisis is one of the most global issues today. And in my mind, anything global has to do with global Christianity in some way. And you see, when you start looking at women's theology from the global South, they are talking about the environment. They're talking about land. They're talking about creation. They're talking about connectedness. They're talking about spirituality, right? They're, they're closing that gap um, in the gap that exists in Western thought, right? Between the physical and the spiritual worlds, so that gap is closed and most other places in the world. Um, so realizing that this is a really important piece of theologizing from the global South, but doing my work from the United States of America, which is the country with the most Christians in the world and home to a large population of climate deniers, to me, this was an issue that needed to be included. And also because in many environmental discussions, the gendered nature of climate change is under-recognized. And that issue carried on into the theological education chapters and the peace building chapters. For both theological education and peace building, people do theological education, they study theological education, people do peace building, they advocate for peace work, but they don't always take into consideration the gendered reality of these topics. So that's the thing that I really wanted to draw out. For theological education, one of the most frequently questions that I get asked in my work is what percentage of church leaders around the world have some kind of theological education? And this is a completely unanswerable question. It's very frustrating to be asked the same question over and over that is unanswerable. <laughs> there is no global data on, on this question. The closest thing we had 
that we have is a World Council of Churches survey from 2013 about global theological education, but it it doesn't attempt to be representative of all theological schools in the world. So what I did is I I used the theological education chapter to identify a data gap, say, this is what we know, and here's what we don't know. And then for peace building, I thought peace building is not really a topic that gets talked a lot about in American churches, I think, because most American Christians don't live in constant conflict and violence. But a lot of Christians around the world do live in constant conflict and violence. So for me, to be global is to talk about issues for people that are outside of your own context and um, one thing we're seeing a lot in the world is increased militarism, but again, a lack of gendered awareness of militarism and the role of Christianity in both supporting and combating violence. So this chapter, again, does not attempt to be comprehensive, but talks a little bit about the peace churches, about women's roles in advocating for peace work, and most importantly, creating their own tables when they're denied a seat at the main table. That's one of the major themes you see in women's advocacy work all around the world is making a path when there's no path set for them. Yes, thank you very much for walking us through this part three, where you really touch upon very important and um, important crucial conversation. And as a follow-up question, I'd like to suggest spending extra minutes delving into the topic of peace building. Um, as you mentioned, while all topics in part three are relevant and urgent, peace building is a kind of conversation we need as we hear and witness war, conflict, violence, and tensions in our lives more than ever before. So as you insightfully point out, these women uh, may be invisible on the international or national level of peace building efforts, but Christian women have been working behind the scenes to, in your words, to, quote, help achieve peace, security, and human flourishing, end quote. So, um, Dr. Zula, would you introduce one of these women's stories highlighted in this chapter as an example and tell us how these women engage with their Christian faith and practices in their peace-building efforts? One of the major themes that you'll see in the peace-building chapter is women's ability to be boundary crossers. I think every example in the peace building chapter shows examples of women all around the world crossing some kind of boundary to work together with other women to achieve peace in a particular situation. So you have women doing interreligious activism, crossing a religious boundary, crossing ethnic boundaries, crossing physical boundaries, neighborhood boundaries, uh, crossing grassroots versus institutional boundaries. And there's actually a lot of research that shows that women are more likely than men to do boundary crossing work. And one, I think, of the most famous examples of boundary crossing Christian peace building is from Leigh Maguobi of Liberia. She was a leader of a nonviolent women's interfaith peace movement that brought the end of the second Liberian civil war against the dictator Charles Taylor. I mean, you don't get much more inspirational than this to bring women together, in this case, Christians and Muslims, 
um, who saw that their husbands, their brothers, their sons were dying in yet another civil war. And they essentially said, enough is enough. We have enough of our own soft power to enact change. And they made a documentary in 2008, the, which is called Pray the Devil Back to Hell. I highly recommend it. Um, and it tells you the stories of the over 3,000 women who came together to help end a civil war through grassroots activism, protests, sex strikes, singing, and prayer. So this is a really inspirational example. Uh, Lema Gwobi won a Nobel Peace Prize in 2011 for her work uh, in the intersection of religion, gender, and peace. So whereas this might not be a topic on the minds of most American listeners, it is a topic that is front and center for a lot of Christians around the world. Thank you, Dr. Zerlo, for engaging us with these um, uh, questions and by providing us with insightful answers. I know we can talk a lot longer uh, in regards to your book, but uh, we'll save um, the more uh, the rest of the contents for our listeners and future readers so that they can further dive into your book and um, also help them uh, engage into uh, women in world Christianity um, and their own research as well. Uh, as we now head towards the end of our interview, there are two questions I would like to ask you, and that is, what do you hope scholars working on world Christianity will take from your book? And what new doors for research would you say your book opens up? I really hope that this will be a generative work. Along the way throughout the book, I identify lots of gaps in data. Gaps in data are questions that are being asked that we don't have the answers to. So I hope that as people read this book and encounter those gaps, that they get as frustrated as I am that those gaps exist. <laughs> because when we have good data, we can make good decisions about the health of our organizations, our churches, for the advancement of, of scholarship. Just we need good data. So if, if you want to know what data gaps exist in women in world Christianity, email me. Let's have a conversation because I can just rattle off a bunch of them for you. So many unanswered questions of, of things we don't know yet. So I hope that as this book is used at the graduate level, at the undergraduate level, you learn about why women's stories are marginalized, what you can do to educate yourself to bring women's stories into the center, and then how you can be a part of the solution to really um, engage in groundbreaking research to bring, uh, to bring more clarity to these questions and then answers to those questions. Thank you, Dr. Zolo, again, for this important work because I can see myself now I'm running into this book whenever I have a question about women in world Christianity because now I know where to start and not, not just end at there, but it's a great starting point that you provided uh, for a scholar like me and many other um, readers and audiences. So as we conclude today's interview, uh, there is one final question we'd like to ask you, and that is, do you mind uh, sharing with us your current and future projects and what you hope to work on. So this year, as a Yang visiting scholar of world Christianity at Harvard Divinity School, I'm working on the next round of the Women in World Christianity Project, because as I did the first round, which you see in this book, 
I was dissatisfied with the own data that I was producing. There are unanswered questions in my own data that need to be answered. So you only got part one in the Women in World Christianity book. So this year, I'm building a brand new data set that measures the gap between men and women in all different kinds of congregational life. So religious service attendance, beliefs, attitudes, leadership, both pastoral leadership and other kinds of leadership so that we can have a better sense of the ways in which world Christianity is a woman's movement. So I'm trying to nuance my own data to get better data. And I'll tell you, it is not easy. <laughs> it is really, really hard and time consuming, but it's worth it um, to come up with information that really gets more at the heart of the gap. That's how you handle inequalities. You measure them in gaps, not levels. So what is the gap between men and women uh, in churches around the world? And one other project I'm kind of toying with is a project on world Christianity and the climate crisis. So I've done a pilot study and I'm working on the next round of it now, um, which looks at, it uses text mining of church websites around the world to see which churches worldwide are engaging in climate change discourse and the nature of that discourse. And the sample that I'm working with now represents 1.6 billion Christians. That's a about half of all Christians in the world are represented in this data set based on their websites. So uh, to be determined what comes out of that, but we'll, we'll get a sense of who's talking about the climate change, who isn't, who's doing something about it, and who's not. Those sounds like very fascinating projects, Dr. Zerlo, and we truly look forward to reading more of your work, especially part two about women in world Christianity. Again, uh, thank you so much, Dr. Zerlo, for being on the podcast today. We really enjoyed having you here as well. Me too. Thank you so much. And thank you, everyone, also for listening to today's episode in which we explored women in world Christianity, building and sustaining a global movement written by Dr. Zina Zerlo and published by Wiley Blackwell in 2023. This is your host, Byung-ho Choi. And Son Young Lee. And please stay tuned for the next episode on the new books on world Christianity.